1912, Emile Durkheim, the French sociologist, described a phenomenon in Australian Aboriginal societies. His data wasn't perfect. He was guilty of some ethnocentrism. And so he was looking through a glass darkly, but he nonetheless managed to tease out a basic, a fundamental aspect of all human life. Life in those Aboriginal societies that he had data on, he said, quote, alternates between two different phases. In one phase, the population is scattered in small groups that attend to their occupations independently. Each family lives by itself, hunting, fishing, in short, striving by all possible means to get the food it requires. In the other phase, by contrast, the population comes together, concentrating itself at specified places for a period that varies from several days to several months. This concentration takes place when a clan or a portion of the tribe conducts a religious ceremony. These two phases stand in sharpest possible contrast. The first phase, in which economic activity predominates, is generally of rather low intensity. Gathering seeds or plants necessary for food, hunting, and fishing are not occupations that can stir truly strong passions. The dispersed state in which society finds itself makes life monotonous, slack, in humdrum. Everything changes when a ceremony takes place. Once the individuals are gathered together, a sort of electricity is generated from their closeness and quickly launches them into an extraordinary height of exultation. Hi, I'm Andy Abel. Welcome to episode six of the Confucian Podcast. I opened with an excerpt from Durkheim's Elementary Forms of Religious Life, a sociological book from the early 20th century and one of the most important books ever written, although most people have never heard about it. In this episode, we're going to lean on Durkheim a little bit and some of the people who followed him to get an understanding of something both Confucius and many contemporary Western social scientists see as fundamental to all human social behavior, ritual. We've been talking about ritual and bear in mind that the Warring States Confucian texts claim that ritual is the secret to well-organized human behavior. Uh, I've just been reading the Zhongyong, uh, and uh, chapter 19 even tells us that um, someone who understands rituals of uh, rituals like sacrifices to heaven and earth and to ancestors 
would have the rule of the kingdom in the palm of his hand, so to speak. And this is a very striking claim, and variations appear elsewhere. A knowledge of ritual, from a Confucian point of view, is basic to governance and all social organization efforts. So, but what is ritual exactly? Um, <laughs> one of the biggest problems I've encountered in discussing Ruism with students is the word ritual. Uh, it's a word that in English carries a, uh, carries a lot of baggage, so we need to clear that up a bit. And as I say, uh, reference to Western scholarship with its different terminology and ap- approaches can allow us to look at things a different way. It can help us to get past some of our taken-for-granted assumptions and get a sense of the Confucian vision. The phrase... Uh, the cliche, really, empty rituals, comes to mind quickly for many, I find, when you use the word ritual. And there's a very strong association between the word ritual and religion among English speakers, which isn't necessarily a problem when you're talking about uh, Confucianism, but it can be. I'll have much more to say about religion in future episodes. Anyway, the word uh, in Chinese is li, Ruists weren't actually concerned with ritual. They were concerned with Li. That's their word. And Li is different. It's broader, and it has very different connotations for Chinese speakers than our word ritual. I can tell you that uh, when I was a dumb kid reading the Confucian texts in translation years ago, the word ritual was a real turnoff for me. It seemed, you know, at first anyway, as if Ruists were going on about some kind of religious practices of the sort people used to do in ancient times, and that didn't have anything to do with me or my life. And having seen my students' eyes begin to glaze over at the mere mention of the word ritual, I, I have a sense there's a real problem here. One of the things that helps is if we, uh, you know, we, what we can do is to throw in other words in place of ritual. Words like ceremony, etiquette, manners, protocols, and so on. Uh, But then we can't get to that Confucian conception of these things as all being a part of something that's at the core of our humanity. And that's such a wow-um idea that we don't want to miss it. The early Ruists weren't precise in defining their terms, right? So they, uh, just like us nowadays, they were working with concepts. And there's variation over time and among texts. So, you know, actually, it's the same thing with any developed line of thought. Over time, as a line of thought develops, you get umbrella terms. Uh, You just have to. Umbrella terms. We have lots of these things in English, too. Of course, capitalism. What exactly is that? Synergy. Holistic. uh, Intentionality. You know, what are these things? These are terms used nowadays to cover many things as concepts, and they're hard to pin down. And we need them because they're like a kind of shorthand. We can't explain the whole range of phenomena again and again in every sentence, so we use umbrella terms. And we understand them, more or less, but when we try to be precise, we can run into problems. And ritual is like that. It's an umbrella term. In the intellect, the term covers things as diverse as 
ceremonial, ceremonial sacrifices, uh, how to get out of a dinner engagement, how one minister should talk to another minister. It, it encompassed rules about the types of hat to be worn at religious rites and how decorum is expressed through behavior. Throughout the Confucian texts, it is as if the Ruists saw ritual everywhere and as an aspect not of exactly every behavior, but of every behavior that is patterned in some way. Again, it's an aspect of all patterned behavior. Of course, if something is random, uh, like dropping your hat or swatting a mosquito, well, that would not be ritual. But if it's something we do where we more or less know the process or the patterns or the protocol, uh, if we know basically how a kind of behavior goes, then there is some level of ritual. Randall Collins, in his 2004 book, Interaction Ritual Chains, responds to the critique that the concept of ritual is overgeneralized, basically that if, if it's everywhere, then it's nowhere kind of thing. And he wrote... In my own use, quote, in my own use of ritual theory, I am one of the worst of sinners, proposing to see ritual almost everywhere. But this does not reduce everything to one bland level, explaining nothing of interest. On the contrary, it provides us with a very generally applicable theory. Collins is great, uh, but uh, we'll start with the... Uh, theorist who influenced him the most, I would say, er Emil Durkheim, and his greatest work, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, the one I quoted at the beginning. Now, as I say, this is one of the most important books ever written. Durkheim teased out some of the basic mechanics of human behavior, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life. This book is, to my mind anyway, the first step among Western thinkers towards something like Confucian understandings of the place of ritual in human life. I cried when I read parts of it, realizing its importance. What is so amazing is that Durkheim shows us these deep mechanical processes at the heart of all human social life. You get down to the mechanics, down to how it functions. Over the years, I've turned a number of students onto this sort of thinking, and it was some of the most exciting teaching I ever did. Having students suddenly able to see basic aspects of the social world around them was really, you know, it's a thrill. And seeing them get into it, uh, it was just terrific. Of course, there were other students who were like, we just want job skills, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, and there were other students who would would say things like, oh, yeah, but I knew that already. Uh, and in a sense, they would be right. We do all have basic understandings of the ritual aspects of our lives, although it was always a weak student who would say something like that. Anyway, Collins and Markowski say of the elementary forms of religious life, quote, Markowski is somebody who wrote an, another book with Collins, sorry, uh, and the two of them write, uh, Durkheim, Durkheim's vision of the nature of society revealed what rationalist thinkers of the 19th century could not see. 
Society is a ritual order, a collective conscience founded upon the emotional rhythms of human interaction. At the peak of scientific and industrial progress, Durkheim broke through into the intellectual world of the 20th uh, 20th century and its deepest problem, the non-rational foundations of rationality. We heard this point last time from, uh, or uh, two times ago, from uh, A.C. Graham, the non-rational foundations of rationality. And here again, that elegant, elegant line from Collins and Markowski, quote, society is a ritual order, a collective conscience founded on the emotional rhythms of human interaction. It's interesting they use the word rhythms here because the metaphor of music uh, it turns up again and again in the uh, Confucian texts. If you've never thought about the society around you in this sense, stick with us because it can really blow your mind. Now, when we talk about emotion, we have to be careful. Confucian thinkers prized habitualized behavior, and we can squabble about the implications of terms like collective conscience, uh, but we're close here, very, very close. The Elementary Forms is Durkheim's last great work. He had come across anthropological studies of Australian aboriginals and believed that he had found an example of religion in the most primitive form of society. So he's guilty of some European ethnocentricity there, and he got many details wrong. But the whole book leads up to an astoundingly good final chapter, and Durkheim's focus turns at times to early 20th century France, a supposedly a religious French revolution, and the workings of society in an industrial age. He shows us that most, or really much of what is uh, reasonably obvious in the less, less complex society of aboriginals, less complex at least in terms of Uh, the existence of complex organizations and the division of labor, things like that, in a technical sense. But what what is reasonably obvious about ritual uh, there can be seen in our world, too. It's a really brilliant work. And again, here, Collins and Mikowski, society is a ritual order, a collective conscience founded upon the emotional rhythms of human interaction. So, uh, what Durkheim did was provide an understanding of how groups are formed and how they form around moral orders, uh, or ritual and slash moral order. So a group of intellectuals, for instance, what makes them a group? How, how do they pull together? Uh, country folk, hipsters, sporty types, thieves. Uh, Durkheim realized that societies are moral communities, even among thieves. Uh, Now, he was French, and so there's a very interesting term here. Uh, You've probably heard the term collective consciousness in English, Um, but the French, and if you've heard that, it's from Durkheim, but the French term is conscience collective. And the English language version leaves out half of this. There are actually two sides uh, to the word conscience. Collective is still collective, uh, but conscience is different. Uh, 
a conscience includes both consciousness or kind of ideas, something like that. Uh, and by the way, it's a cliche to say that Durkheim was a good sociologist and a bad philosopher. Uh, people say that still. Anne Rawls, a student of Garfinkel's and the daughter of John Rawls, actually, uh, made a strong case that the elementary forms lays out an epistemology that solves several key problems. So uh, this old idea that he was a dumb philosopher is, it really needs to be rethought. Anyway, um, we're we're not interested in the consciousness part here and that side of things in this podcast, uh, as much as in the other half of collective, the collective consciousness side of things, conscience. Um, the other side is conscience. Uh, so the French word conscience means both consciousness and conscience. So what Durkheim laid out is an understanding of how social practices lead to a shared conscience, a shared ethic, that is, and how that's informed by what people feel and experience in the course of rituals. So ritual is the mechanism to bring people into a collectivity, a group, and to make that group work. Durkheim uses the term effervescence to describe the kind of up-feeling one gets in a successful ritual. Uh, And he uses the term in different ways to describe subtle feelings, sometimes like a a brief pang felt at an otherwise boring graduation ceremony, or sometimes really strong feelings like losing yourself at a rock concert. And it's instructive to consider different forms of ritual behavior and what they accomplish for groups, what they accomplish socially. So, for instance, an event like a sporting event, you know, what does it do? Usually there's some, at least in the United States, there's some patriotism involved. There's an ethic of teamwork, of striving for achievement in some way. Uh, Other events, things like flag-raising ceremonies, Uh, have to do with sacralizing somehow the country and uh, creating patriotism, award ceremonies, religious rituals, even beer parties. Uh, They all have, you know, these these ritual events have ethics that are confirmed in, in, uh, during the ritual. Durkheim tells us that all groups, really all groups, quote, see to it that periodic conventions are held at which their followers can renew their common faith by making a public demonstration of it together to strengthen emotions that would dissipate if left alone. The one thing needful is to bring all those who share them into more intimate and more dynamic relationship. Isn't that true? Every group, they have to come together sometimes and they have to be a group together. And he writes that when people come together in this way, quote, the result is a general effervescence. People behave differently and more intensely than in normal times, end quote. Uh, These emotions that we experience come to us through our connection to others, and it's not merely in highly charged events like football games or religious revivals. We can experience the power of ritual in our daily lives. He writes, quote, This stimulating action of society is not felt in exceptional circumstances alone. There is virtually no instance, uh, sorry, there is no, virtually no instant 
of our lives in which a certain rush of energy fails to come to us from outside ourselves in all kinds of acts that express the understanding, esteem, and affection of his neighbor, there is a lift that the man who does his duty feels, usually without being aware of it. But that lift sustains him. The feeling society has for him uplifts the the feeling that he has for himself. Because he is in moral harmony with his neighbor, he gains new confidence, courage, and boldness in action, quite like the man of faith who believes he feels the eyes of his God turned benevolently toward him. Notice that Durkheim is linking morality and ritual, something you hear about again and again in the Analects. So the basic mechanic, the practice, uh, a ritual serve to predicate behavior by means of an intersubjectivity that's conditioned upon the entrainment of effective response within these rituals, which is like saying that um, it's how you make a magnet uh, as a metaphor. You, you take a piece of iron and you take a magnet and you rub it back and forth over the thing, and um, that aligns the atoms. The rituals are like this rubbing that creates the alignment of the atoms. And then you get a force. You get a society capable of collective action. Durkheim published in 1912. Confucius died in 479 B.C. When it comes to ritual and how it works, though, the vision is essentially the same. There's a, a real commonality here. And we see that more in later texts. Durkheim allows us to see into the micro level of human life. Although it wasn't until the mid-20th century that other sociologists, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, the other sociologists carried this forward and began to follow up on it. Other Western scholars began taking this insight forward. uh, And, for instance, uh, Irving Goffman, uh, his work on interaction ritual, very famous. If you took a sociology course, you probably read some of his work. Uh, Goffman was aware of the Confucian school, by the way, and he mentions Shunzi very briefly in his book Interaction Rituals, although uh, from the look of the mention, I, I, I don't think he understood Shunzi well at all. Uh, he was probably just showing off or signaling that he was aware of similarities between his work and Confucian thought. I don't know. Um, Harold Garfinkel and his students also studied the ritual order and did so using his technique of disruptions. He would have his students disrupt the taken-for-granted ritual order of everyday life. And he would do that by kind of messing with things. It's, uh, it's, It's fun reading, actually. And one of the few places that sociological research is secretly hilarious, although you're supposed to pretend to be very serious in discussing this sort of thing, but it's hilarious. He would have his students do things like face the wrong way in an elevator, (laughs) where they would go up to some random person on a subway. You just go up to somebody on a subway and say, can I have your seat? You know, and see what happens. And little things like this, little changes in in the way of things, would end up completely undermining the taken-for-granted order that exists. Everything would just fall apart. People wouldn't know how to act. So this work was actually very Confucian in a way, at least in terms of its insight. Although, of course, for Ruists, teasing apart the social order of life was uh, not 
merely an intellectual exercise. They weren't interested in doing that. Their goal was to use the understandings to better order the society. But the Garfinkel disruptions are really interesting and really funny. One of my favorites uh, of these gets to some complex aspects of family rituals. He would uh, send his students home (laughs) over a break, and he'd ask them, uh, to uh, when they came down the next day for breakfast or something, to act politely uh, as if they would uh, if they were living in a boarding house or something like that. So these college kids would come down for breakfast for first morning back and say something like, "Good morning. I hope you slept well. This looks like a wonderful breakfast. May I join you?" You know, this kind of very polite talk. And typically, the family would play along for a while, but they would think it was a joke usually. And eventually, they would just have none of it. And, um, you know, what the hell is wrong with you would be a typical response at some point. And some of these students had to stop and uh, because their family got so angry with them. And no amount of explaining that, you know, it was for my class. I had to do this, this kind of thing. For some families, that wasn't enough. They wouldn't buy it because they felt that there was a loss of trust. Very interesting. You see, the ritual order is actually very fragile. What's so interesting here is that the students, in this case, when they came downstairs, were acting more polite than usual, not less. But that was the disruption. That was all it took to cause the taken-for-granted ritual order to suddenly move from invisible to being totally obvious and everybody trying to get back to it somehow. The disruption would make the ritual order obvious, simply because one small aspect, like the assumption of a familial tone in ordinary conversation, one small aspect is subverted. So it's funny uh, in a way, but very interesting too. These kinds of insights of contemporary social science can support us in understanding Confucian thought. This is not to say that we should try to rethink the analects entirely uh, or, you know, reread it from a Western perspective or something. Uh, We don't need to disregard the commentaries. Uh, But understanding the parallels in these streams of thought, East and West, uh, helps us to see how and why Confucian thought was a breakthrough. Uh, And I think when most people hear about ritual, they don't get to that deeper sense that there's actually something really neat going on, something worth looking at. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, Next time, we'll go back to the Analects and uh, dig a little deeper. Uh, We'll further explore the concept of benevolence and its relationship to ritual will be our focus. I'll start off next time with a story of a funeral gone wrong, uh, which I hope will interest you. Again, please feel free to email me at confucianpodcast at gmail.com. That's confucianpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I always love hearing from people. Till next time, express kindness, develop your mind, 
avoid all depravity, and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.